0: just due to time so open up to the book of hosea chapter 2 that's where we're at i want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be taking a look at here today we'll jump right in in fact what i want to do is uh, we have a kind of a large passage of scripture to cover and usually what we do on sunday mornings is we take books of the bible and just go through the entire book verse by verse chapter by chapter and let god speak to us and believe that god speaks to us through his word and this is one of the ways in which he does it so um I'm going to just first begin by praying and ask God for his help over this, and then what we'll do as we get into the actual message, then we'll begin to read it. Um, we kind of have a, I don't know if I would call it a tradition, but oftentimes what we do, a habit, if you would, we typically read the passage up front. We're not going to do that this time, but we will be reading it as we get into it, because there's a lot of scripture that we'll be covering, and we just want to spend more time uh, unpacking it as we do. So let's pray. We'll go through the passage, I'll give you the outline of it, and then we will then begin to go through it. And then, Uh, Our hope, our prayer is that as uh, we jump into this, that the Bible will kind of serve as a dual purpose for us, Uh, one, to be a a window by which we can see God and how God works in our lives, but also uh, the secondary purpose, which we oftentimes dislike about the Bible, that it would serve as a mirror and show us who we are and reveal to us those areas uh, that we need to be transformed and changed and then go back into a window so that we can then be the part of this life and live the life that God calls us to be. So let me pray over us. We'll get to work. Sound good? God, thank you so much for your grace, your kindness, your affection, God, that you have shown to us and demonstrated to us through Jesus. God, we pray right now that you would just help us to take our lives and the circumstances in our lives, lay them down at your feet, and allow you to minister and transform and change us. And we pray and ask that you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I need to give you a quick disclaimer. I forgot to do this last service. Um, <clears throat> some of the content we're going to just cover, just FYI, uh, by way of disclaimer, is for, it's like PG 13. All right. So most of you guys are old enough. You'll be able to handle it and deal with it. If you got children that are probably, I don't know, 8 to, I don't know, 12, maybe even older, I guess, it may actually be inappropriate. So just that's an FYI. Uh, last service, forgot to say that. And someone brand new visiting a church. Um, unfortunately stumbled into this service and heard me. So um, anyways, uh, nothing like grotesque, but you'll get the idea as we begin to take a look at this. So what I want to start by saying is there's two things that we'll be taking a look at. One is we'll be taking a look at Israel's idolatry. We'll unpack that in a moment. The second thing we'll take a look at is God's response to Israel's idolatry. Now, the story of the book of Hosea is a story of way of living metaphor. And what I mean by that, if we can, Look at it this way. There are three recurring concepts or themes that arise throughout the story of the book of Hosea. The next slide, we'll kind of break these down for you so you can see what they are. We'll go through them very quickly uh, just because we'll highlight them. The first of which is the fact that what we'll see with regard to the book of Hosea is that God is likened to a loving, generous, and a faithful husband, that this is who God is. He's patient, generous, loving, faithful. That's, he's a husband. The second thing we'll take a look at, and that's kind of a recurring theme throughout the book of Hosea, is that. Whoredom, the idea of whoredom or adultery, this is the PG-13 stuff. Uh, It gets more in depth as we go into it. But the whoredom, the idea of adultery, prostitution, all of these are metaphors for idolatry. Because God's covenant with his people, Israel, the relationship that God has forged with his people, Israel, is considered to be like a marriage. So anytime Israel turned their back on God and began to engage in idolatry, this was equivalent to a wife in a faithful relationship with her husband, in other words, her husband is faithful to her, and she would actually turn her back on him and then look for alternative lovers to give herself away to them. This is, this is the type of language that the book of Hosea basically uh, introduces for us to kind of work through and deal with. The third thing, in terms of a concept, is that idolatry is the Old Testament word to describe our perennial drift from God as being the center of our lives. So in other words... In the Old Testament, there is a, a metaphor, a picture that the Bible uses to describe or depict Israel's constant, ongoing drift from God. The Old Testament word for that is idolatry. So if you ever kind of wondered, like, why does God always kind of use graphic imagery to describe Israel's idolatry? Why does he describe it as adultery? Why does God describe Israel's idolatry, or idolatry as being like prostitution or sexual immorality? Well, the reason is, is because God is a husband who has betrothed himself and is in a marriage covenant with his wife, Israel. And every time Israel has turned her back on God to carve out, to make uh, these little alternative idols or these uh, totem poles or these things that she would give herself to, would be like Israel, this wife, getting into an illicit relationship, literally getting into bed with another lover. So it's important to understand that Israel is not involved in some sort of what we would call like a love triangle. It would be more appropriate to describe Israel's relationship with God as not a love triangle, but really more so as a love polygon. Israel had many lovers. Israel was constantly looking for alternative lovers by which she was giving herself away to regularly, constantly, perennially. The New Testament word to describe idolatry is, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, it's the word desire. That our desires are what take us off this path or out of orbit with regard to God. So if you can think of it this way, that God created us so that he would be the son of our solar system. All right, I'm just going to say universe, but I know that's not correct. So God would be the center of our solar system. And our lives would be like these planets that go around him. And what happens in our lives is that rather than God being the center, the sun of our solar system, we oftentimes find ourselves revolving around, going around alternative things. And when we do that, we're actually not finding our lives in any form of order. We actually find our lives careening out of control because we have made something other than God, the sun, central. And the New Testament equivalent to that would be called our desires. Why do we do that? Why do we give ourselves away to something else? Why do we devote our hearts to something other than God? Why do we try to find life and hope and patience or peace and forgiveness and life and alternative things? Because we have these hopes that somehow they will offer to us something that maybe we are not currently getting from God. So we give ourselves away. That would be the equivalent term used in the Old Testament to describe idolatry, the New Testament, idea is our desires, regardless of whether it's idolatry or desires, both of them define and describe this perennial drift that we have in our hearts away from God. Hymnists know this, they sing a song, we sing a song oftentimes here, it's one of our favorite songs, I think, as a church, prone to water, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, take my heart, O Lord, and seal it, seal it for your courts above. Why do we pray that? Why do we love that song? Why is there something about that song that whenever we sing it, our church goes absolutely crazy. We love that song because that is our experience. We're like cars out of alignment, driving on a bumpy road with our hands not on the wheel. That's the way our lives are like, careening out of control. But there's something even worse and more dubious at play with regard to that is that our heart's to some degree, want to be in that place. Even though there's a sense of uneasiness and brokenness. But at some point, we find ourselves off in the wilderness where there's like no way back. Where we are, in essence, lost. And that's where Israel is. And that's what the story of Hosea is really all about. So, that's the idea. So here's a question. What were some of Israel's lovers that she kept getting into bed with? Metaphorically speaking. What were some of these lovers? that God basically turns to Israel and says, look, I'm tired of this. In fact, let's read this to kind of jump into the storyline uh, as we begin to make our way through it. So take a look at verse 2. It says this. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife. So God is basically saying, plead, meaning like take her to court and plead with her. What's going on? Why is this happening? Plead with your mother. Plead with my wife. She's, she's really not my wife. For I am not her husband. And she has put away her whoring and tell her to put away her whoring from her face and the adultery from between her breasts. Again, very graphic language, but God is basically saying, my wife, my bride, the one whom I love, the one whom I've been a faithful, loving, generous, compassionate, patient husband with over and over and over again. And I've given her everything she has, the silver, the gold, the grain, uh, everything she has ever needed. I've always supplied everything for her. She has actually turned her back, and hopped into bed with all sorts of alternative lovers. Why? That's what God's question is. Why does Israel keep doing this? So what are some of the lovers that Israel has jumped into these illicit relationships with? So first of all, we'll go through these very quickly. One is most notably called Baal, B-A-A-L. And that is the Old Testament, or in Old Testament, what's called a Canaanite God. Um, it's oftentimes described as a title. Um, the word Baal can also refer to... Um, a uh, whole host of names, for example, like uh, master or lord or owner, keeper, husband. All of these are various interchangeable words that can be used to describe Baal. Um, but take a look at the image that's right here. This is actually an ancient Canaanite idol that someone had carved. And it is a depiction of the worship of this god, Baal. Now, Baal was a male. And uh, if you can take a look at this, there's a few things that you can. This is kind of PG-13 element of this. Um, one, it is a bull. It's obvious. It's a bull. Why Why? choosing a bull. Well, bulls were known for their strength. But another thing you'll notice is that it has some sort of a, uh, something strapped around its waist, probably like a, um, uh, a, a place to, to host its sword. Um, so it's depicting the sense of power and greatness. But there's something also on the image, which I'm not going to get too graphic to identify. It should be pretty obvious for you. But if you don't see it, then that's fine. Ask a neighbor. But it also depicts something by way of virility. I'll just keep it at that straight-up extreme virility. So a cow, an ox, was actually used to, to depict this pagan god, Baal, and Israel was regularly turning to this worship of this god, Baal. Now, why? Were they turning to this god, Baal, completely, 100%? And the answer to that is no. Ironically, Israel, um, what a lot of scholars would describe, and this is like the $20 word for you guys today, so you're welcome, um, Israel was engaging what's called syncretistic religion. All right. Big word, I know. But syncretistic religion basically means that Israel was synchronizing worship of Baal with the worship of God. So it would be similar to like, let's say, for example, you came to church here on Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, we sing a couple songs. During Jesse, lead us into a couple songs. You're like Please rise and uh, have a chat with somebody. You know, and then afterwards, uh, we sing a couple songs. And then, and then afterwards, uh, somebody gets up and they read a portion from the Quran And they're like, all right, let's, let's turn to Allah. And us let's, let's ask Allah's blessing upon this morning, and we'll see what he has to speak to us. Some of you will be like, what in the world is going on? This is, this, is not, this is not the God of the Bible. Like, this is not, this is not okay. And someone gets up, and like, well, we're just trying to be, you know, politically correct and try to keep everybody happy and show honor to all sorts of religions. So we're just going to entertain, because every religion has something to say to us. Uh, that is basically syncretistic religion. Israel was engaging in sort of this hodgepodge, sort of this synchronizing of various forms of religion. Now, a lot of times people get a little bit frustrated with that. And again, we live in a culture that's very uh, PC. We want to be politically correct. We don't want to offend anybody. We're very scared about offending everybody. But the point of the matter is what makes Christianity unique, this is an important thing for you to know. The reason why God says don't worship Baal to the people of Israel, why God says it's a bad thing for you to do that, and why God would say that to us, don't give your heart away to things that are not rooted in in my word that don't lead to life because the problem is is by turning to these other things other than god they promised us some form of life some form of hope but they end up enslaving us they end up enslaving us so for example the children of israel that worship Baal, guess what type of people they became full of military strength, and loved sex a lot. Why? Well, that's the guy they worship. Does that make sense? They became people that were obsessed with blood and obsessed with having sex with each other. So we look at our culture a lot of times, and we're like, ah, that ain't us. We don't worship little statues, little totem poles. I've said this before because the reality is, is for us as a culture, we live in a 21st century. It's kind of a modern, we live in modernity slash post-modernity, and oftentimes we're like, you know, we're we're not so like those ancient cultures that carved out these things. And I've said this before, but the reality is, I, I would almost even say, in a lot of ways, we're actually worse because ancient civilizations and ancient cultures, the reason why they carved these things out, because they were really honest with the world around them, and if they were going to worship a god of military might and power and fertility. They wanted other people to know that. So they would carve out a little statue or just go down to the local market and buy this. Stick it on the hood of their horse. I don't know, right? Like a little horse hood ornament. You know, I don't know. But the point of the matter is they wanted people to realize that, that this is who I've given my heart to. This is what I value. This is what I've given myself to. We in our culture, we're like, I don't worship anybody. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Look, and let me tell you something. None of us in this room are worship neutral. None of us. We're hardwired to worship. We're hardwired to give ourselves over to something, to somebody. The problem with that is, is that if we give ourselves over to somebody or something that is not God, as he's revealed himself through his son Jesus, that somebody or something may start out offering you great promises of peace and life and hope and security, but at some point it will become a master over you and enslave you. Addicts know this storyline well. Anybody here, recovering addict? Anybody don't talk about it? Know somebody who's a recovering addict? Raise your hand. I want to see you. All right. All right. Like, maybe the rest of you weren't that honest, but maybe a handful of you. But the point of the matter is you get the idea. Addicts understand this story well. It usually starts out as I'll just give myself over this thing. At some point, you become a slave by this thing, it traps you. You're not in control anymore. You thought you were in control, but there reaches a point, reaches a moment where you're just like, you're stuck. This is what happened with Israel. She was stuck. She was trapped. Because everything we give our hearts, our lives, ourselves, over to, that's not Jesus, will end up at some point enslaving us and crushing us. And this is why God looked at the people of Israel and says, you, Israel, who gives your heart over to these bowels, Is committing adultery, and it will crush you. The second thing is Egypt and Assyria. I'll just kind of lump them together. What Egypt and Assyria offered was political or military might and strength. Is that Assyria was a threat that was going to invade the people of Israel at some point. So you can imagine, what does a nation have to offer another nation like the people of Israel? Well, they have to offer military might. They have to offer maybe mercenaries. So in other words, if your borders are threatened, what you do is just hire. um, You kind of get yourself into sort of an agreement with Egypt. It's like, who cares whether or not Egypt worships all sorts of other gods and they do all sorts of crazy things. It's all right. We, we need Egypt. We love Egypt. We will align ourselves with Egypt. And therefore, their morals become the morals of the people of Israel. And at some point, the people of Israel are in bed with another nation, in bed with another God, giving their hearts away. I've said this before. That the real issue with the people of Israel was not so much with what they were doing, but with what they were loving. They were in love with the power that Egypt and Assyria the offered them. They were in love with the power that Baal had offered them. They were in love with the fact that Baal offered some level of fertility or a hope of fertility. And at some point, they became enslaved to this. Um, uh, Tim Keller, next slide, um, has a great definition of idolatry. Here's what he says. Idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know that I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. We're all prone to this. This is not simply relegated to a culture back in antiquity. They may have actually carved out little idols, made little statues and little totem poles and put them up on their mantles. We might not look at that and find that as being kind of cool, so we don't do that anymore. But the same root causal problems that ancient Israel had are the same root causal issues that you and I have. It is not primarily a thing of doing bad stuff. It is primarily a thing of which we love or worship. We love the wrong things. Therefore, we give ourselves over to the wrong things. And as a result of that, we find ourselves bound. This is where Israel was. So we move in. We've got to ask the question, what was God's response? We're going to go through this quickly. First of all, we're going to see four responses. One, deprivation. God's going to deprive them. Two, prevention. God is going to set up roadblocks or obstacles. Three, discipline. God will establish some level of discipline. Fourth, we will see a very strange, unique shockingly amazing twist in God's reaction to the people of Israel, whereby he himself will actually set the grounds by which he himself will pursue the people of Israel. So first of all, let's jump in, begin to take a look at deprivation and take a look at verses three through five. It says this, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born. Now, a lot of scholars kind of look at this and think this is sort of a strange form of poetic justice because what you know, obviously no need to ask that question. But you get the idea. If you are going to be prostituting yourself out or whoring yourself out of your bride in bed with another lover, obviously you are by nature naked. And what God's saying is I will strip her from her clothing, and she will continue that nakedness out in the open. Not just in the bed, not in privation, not in the dark, not where nobody else can see, but she I will strip her of her clothes in, in public. So therefore she will feel a semblance, a sense of that shame. That goes along with that. God goes on to say, and he will uh, make her like the wilderness and make her like a parched land. And He will kill her with thirst and upon her children. Also, I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. For the mother has played the whore. She has conceived and has then acted shamefully for she said, I will go after other lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. And what God is really saying is that Your other lovers have not given you oil, flax, drink, all these other things that you assume I have given them to you, but what you've done is you've actually given credit over to them, and as a result of that, they will be taken away from you. This is what God's saying, is a sense of deprivation. God will take away. Look at the words that are used there, stripped, naked, wilderness, parched, thirst. God used that word wilderness. Uh, We'll come back to this in a moment. The word wilderness is an important word because... It's a word that's used in the history of the people of Israel. As a part when they came out of the Egypt, they were led into the wilderness. And they were there for how many years? Does anybody take a guess? 40 years, right? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God brought them into the promised land. Wilderness, if you want to think of it this way, I've been to Israel. Um, I, I, I know what the land to some degree is like geographically. And um, it was actually sh- shockingly surprising to me as I was driving around Israel um, and looking at the geography of the area and thinking it, it feels a lot like the central coast, not necessarily the central coast, but from, let's say Paso North. So let's say, for example, you go up Paso, up to Paso, and then you take the 46 and you begin to start going towards Bakersfield, you know, that long stretch of just nothing but no man's land, right? It's like a, a, the occasional tumbleweed, all right? That, that would be equivalent to Israel's quote unquote wilderness, it's desert. It's dry, it's barren, it's parched, it's lifeless. What God is saying is that I will take away everything so this life that you thought you were having is going to actually be lifelessness. I'm going to deprive you of that. Some of us might look at that and think, that's really harsh. Why would God do that? I, I thought God was a giving God. I thought God just gave us what we wanted. I thought when we call to God, he would just give us. Look, that's a misunderstanding in your understanding of who God is. We love this concept of God, the way C.S. Lewis describes it as, is like a, a grandpa. We like to think of God as being this grandpa that just gives us anything we want. Grandpa, can I have a piece of candy? Reaches into his pocket and sticky candy comes out. I was like, here you go, son. You know, that's not who God is. God does not give us everything we want. We pray, we fast, we do all these things hoping somehow to just get God to give us what we really want. And if that's the type of God that you've made in your mind, beware because what you've done is you've actually forged the God in your likeness and in your image rather than recognizing who he is based upon revelation. That what God is saying is that there's times when I actually withhold. I do give, but I do also take away. I add, multiply, and sometimes I even subtract. Why? Because I love you. If you had someone in your life that you knew that you loved, let's say an addict, and you knew that drugs were killing them, you would probably want to do everything you can to hide the drugs from it, or at least somehow cut off money financial source, or at least create some sort of opportunity whereby you can keep it up. All right, maybe that analogy is not settling with you. Uh, Let's say that you have relationship or connection with a little kid who's like three years old, and you know that this kid has spotted the cookie jar on top of the refrigerator. And that's absolute danger zone. Because you know that kid, the moment he sees that, his heart desire, right? Going back to the idea of desire. That child is now drifting. Rather than watching Barney or Dora, I don't know, they're like now drifting. They want to get the cookies on top of the refrigerator. And you've already caught the kid once climbing and tottering, about ready to fall off. But because you love that kid, because you know that if that child gets the desire of its heart, it could, something cataclysmic can happen to that child. Concussion, something worse. So out of a loving endeavor to intervene in their life, you push the cookie jar back out of sight so they can't see it anymore. Or better yet, you just get rid of it completely. You deprive the child whom you love that has this addiction, this love in their heart for something that could potentially kill it. So again, think of it this way. A child might see something that's blue and be like, oh, go You're like, You're like, no, that's toilet ball cleaner. looks the same. It's the exact same red dye, 14, you know, whatever. But it's not the same. It will kill you. So because I love you, I'm going to put weird, strange locks on every single thing in the house to keep you from getting toilet bowl cleaner because it will kill you. Out of love, I will deprive you. God, out of love to Israel saying, I'm going to deprive her from that which she is turning to and it is crushing her. So perhaps, perhaps, some of those subtractions in your life, are actually God's kind hand saying, what you have placed in your heart and set your affections on. I will intervene and take it away. Because I love you. Second thing that we see is God not only depriving this from Israel, but also the prevention. He sets these obstacles. Verses 6 through 8 he says this, therefore I will hedge her by way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, and so that she cannot find her paths. And she will then pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek for them, but not find them. And they will say, I will go and return to the first, my first husband, for it is better for me than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, yet they used these to worship thou. So they it this way. Everything that Israel had, she used to hop into another illicit relationship and give it away to them. So it's like, how did Israel pay the tab? Well, she paid the tab with everything that God gave her. This is what was going on. So God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up hedges. I'm going to set up walls around Israel so it will make it more challenging, more difficult for her to get what she really wants. And I love this passage where God basically says, she will pursue her lovers but not overtake them. Meaning... Her heart will long for these things that somehow they promise her. But at the end of the day, her heart will never be fully satisfied. will never really get what she wants. It's kind of like this eating, but never getting full, constantly sowing seed, but never getting a harvest, constantly working as many hours as you invest of your life to get a good job, to make a lot of money, but you're constantly in debt. Does it describe anybody's life? Have you ever felt like that? It's what God's saying. I'm saying this is exactly what God's doing in your life. But really what the point of the matter is, this is what God's saying I did with Israel, is that I'm going to make it difficult for her to wrap her heart around these things. So I'm going to set up a wall around her and hedge her in. I'm going to protect her for her own safety, for her own sake. Third thing that we see that God does is he disciplines her. The word that's ultimately used in verse 13, it says, I will punish her. It could also be translated, Discipline, I'm going to use the word discipline because if you think of the word punish, uh, we may wrongly think punishment as meaning God will crush and destroy and ruin and rid himself of Israel forever. And we know in the storyline that this is not what God does because true punishment would incur upon Israel who has been the adulterous bride what type of punishment is just, according to the Old Testament. That if a wife or a bride or a husband was committing adultery, by law, God says they were to be taken out and stoned or killed. But this is not what God does with Israel. He actually saves Israel. So he's not going to, quote unquote, punish Israel in a way of obliterating Israel off the face of the planet. But he will chasten her. He will discipline her. So we see, it says verse 9. Therefore, I will take her back. Or I will take back uh, my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away the wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of her hand. And I will put an end to all of her mirth, feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all the appointed feasts is God's way of saying that all of these false gods that Israel gave herself to, the Baals, the other nations, all these other uh, desires and longings, that they all promised her celebration and joy. And yet what's happened is there is no celebration. There is no joy. And that in the place of celebration and joy, there's nothing but a sense of heaviness and despair and brokenness. Have you ever felt that? Is that oftentimes the way we find our lives, that we give ourselves, we give our hearts, we give our money, we give our time, we give our energy away to things that we hope, we hope that somehow that what we'll get out of that is a good time. But in return, what we don't get is a good time. We get out of that brokenness. We feel defiled. We feel filthy. We walk away. We feel oppressed and broken. We feel as if our life is now kind of out of joint. Something's not right. Something's out of alignment. We are not Celebrating, What God is saying to Israel is that you thought you were going to celebration, but I'm going to take away all of the celebration that you thought you had. And this is by way of my loving but firm discipline for you. And he goes on, he says, and I will lay waste to her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given to me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the bowels which she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with the ring and the jewelry and went after other lovers and ultimately forgot me, says the Lord. I said this from the very beginning, that the story of Hosea is not intended for us to just simply theoretically and intellectually consume it. It's intended for us to feel it, to enter into it, to feel the sense of pain, And what God's saying is that when somebody is in a relationship, for example, Israel and God, when somebody that you love, you've given your heart to that person, when they do something to you that actually violates or breaks a trust or betrays you, that is absolutely earth-shattering. Breaks, literally breaks our heart. And what God is saying is that this is what Israel has done to me. That pain. I'm swallowing. I'm enduring because Israel has turned her back on me. Now, the final thing we finish with is this final action of God. Because what we're going to see is God's final movement here in response, which is absolutely shocking and in some ways unprecedented. Because up to this point, we can look at this and be like, well, God's acted perfectly just. In other words, if you're dealing with an addict and they're doing things that are destructive, if you've got a little child and they're constantly getting into the Cupboards and they're about ready to just down some you know, toilet bowl cleaner just because it's beautiful blue, uh, you realize like that's, that's not good. Like a, a good parent would do everything they can to hedge protections around that child, to put different types of barriers and blockades to keep that child from doing things that are potentially harmful. And if the parent doesn't do that, they're not acting justly. Do you guys agree with that? But there's a limitation to that. Because even though you can push the cookie jars back to where the child can't see. And even though you can put locks on the cabinets, what you cannot do by way of those good, just actions is you cannot get the blue dye out of the heart and the mind of that child. Because in the child's mind is this thought of, I gotta get me some blue stuff. I gotta get cookies that are out of my reach. Child can't rationalize with that. Let me bring it into more of a modern day type of a concept. Let me just pick on internet pornography. You can be someone that is addicted to something that's as destructive as that. And you might have good roommates around. You might have good friends around. You might have good parents around you, people that love you. And they might say, you know what? Um, we're going to completely make this a Wi-Fi-free zone house. There's no Wi-Fi available now. Uh, we're going to also confiscate your computer and get rid of it and Take take it away. And we're going to get rid of your iPhone and just give you some sort of an old-school flip phone, Motorola. We're going to do everything we can to cut the cord literally to keep you from getting porn. Does that change the heart of the person who's addicted? No, because it's still there. God's looking at his people and saying, I love you. But you don't love me. I've given you everything. I've given you life. I've given you silver, gold, food, rain to give you crops. I've given you covering. Everything I've given you has been free because of my love. But for some reason, Israel, you keep giving your heart, peddling your heart away, hopping into it, all sorts of other relationships with these other gods. What should I do? God finishes with his final statement. and He says, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her out into the wilderness I will speak tenderly to her and there I will give her vineyards and I will make the valley of a door of hope and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of Egypt and what God is basically going back to in their history books he's like you remember that time when I first called you you heard my voice there's a lot you didn't understand a lot you didn't know about me and yet you said yes Lord. God makes reference to the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor was a moment in Israel's history when they went from the transition, it was a transitional time from the wilderness into the place of the promised land. It was the very first uh, conquest in the land over this city called AI. And what happened was uh, after AI was conquered, um, the first fruits of all of that was to go to God. Instead, what happened was Israel got a little greedy and they're like, you oh, know, let's steal some money and goods and silver and gold for ourselves. And then ends up that God, brings his judgment upon the people of Israel. In other words, it was, it was a blight. It was like a blood stain upon the past of the people of Israel's history. And God says, the Valley of Acor, that was a blight. That was a, a moment of drought, a moment of destruction on your history books. God says, I'm gonna take that moment of great shame, pain, brokenness, destruction, and defilement, and that will become the door of hope in the wilderness. It'd be like God coming to us today saying, hey, you remember that time? If you're a lady or you had a, if you're a dude and you had a girlfriend and you got her pregnant and you went and got an abortion. You know, you can abort that child, but you will never abort that memory of pain. I know ladies 20 years later still feeling the pain, the shame, the guilt of that act. It's a valley of acor." And God says, I will take that valley of Acor. I will take what happened in the abortion clinic, and that will become a door of hope. I will take what happened in your life that were definitive moments of pain and sorrow and sin that you brought into your existence that had rippling effects that destroyed other people and other relationships. God says, that will become a door of hope. How? What God is really saying, I'm done. I'm going to have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up with this. What God is saying is that I want you to know that my actions towards you are always nothing but love. God's challenge is basically this. What have your idols done to love you? This is a question we got to really kind of think about and ask ourselves. What idols, what do our idols? What are the things that we give our hearts to? How have they demonstrated love to us? How have they shown love to us? They might give us benefits, all right? And don't confuse benefits with love. Don't confuse services with love. Because you can get goods and services from a vending machine. But a vending machine will not love you. It will take your quarters, probably lots of them. But it will never wrap its arms around you and say, I will give everything i am and have and possess to you so the question is the burden of proof for god's people is what have your idols done to show love the question that you have to ask is true love always involves sacrifice you can't have look you can be in a marriage and be like i love my wife and every single time she asks you something hey sweetheart can you just come hang out i want to talk you're like, I don't have time to talk. <laughs> and I just want you to listen. I don't want to listen. I'll listen to the news and you can talk like that inability or des- lack of desire to even ever want to show sacrifice to do things that maybe are painful to you, right? Maybe listening is very painful to you. That is a sacrifice that if you are unwilling ever to offer sacrifice, I don't care what you say. You do not love. Love always involves sacrifice. We know that the core of who we are. God's question is, what have your idols done to show that they love you? And the question needs to keep going back upstream to, what has God done to show that he loves us? And this is where, as a storyline, I've said this before, as you guys read your Bibles, you need to think gospel-centrically. In other words, think that the Bible kind of sends these little lines out, and these lines go out, and as they go out, they lead us somewhere. And the story of Hosea sends these lines out. And the lines lead us, if you follow them, by way of wilderness analogy. Not only backwards, where Israel had a wilderness experience. And the wilderness experience for Israel, let's put it this way, did not go good. Every single time Israel was tempted, what did they do? They always failed and got God angry. Some of you might be like, well, God eventually brought them into the land of the promise. And weren't they amazing when the land of the promise? The answer is, no, no. They were just as messed up. They constantly failed. They constantly did not do. They acted out of covenantal relationship with God. But until there comes a point in time in history when God sends his son into this world, Jesus gets baptized. The first thing the Bible tells us from there is it says the spirit of God drove him into the wilderness. For how long? 40 days. Why? What Jesus was basically saying is that I will do for Israel what Israel failed. In the wilderness, what happened? Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus give in? Did he sin? Did he make, you know, bread out of stones? No, Jesus was 100% faithful to God on behalf of Israel. Follow that line off further. Three years later, you see Jesus on the cross in the place of where Israel truly deserves to be. Judged, condemned, oppressed, abandoned, forsaken, Divorced. Well, the question goes upstream to the bigger question. What has your God done, the true God done, to demonstrate his love for you? To Israel, God would say this. While you were still whore, I loved you. The New Testament counterpart of that would be Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where God says, but God has demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, parentheses, a whore, you know, violating God's covenant, idolatrous. You can put in the blanks, dot, 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 etc., etc. Whatever it was that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because he was demonstrating the length, the height, the breadth, the depth that he would go to not just tell you he loves you, but to demonstrate how much he loves you. To the degree that you see the depth Of love that he has gone to pursue you. That changes your heart. You know what that means? It means that rather than constantly digging in your heels. Putting up your defenses. Keeping your walls up. Letting your heart run after all these other false loves. You begin to realize that you are deeply loved by this God. That should actually crush you. But instead was crushed through his son for you. So that you can be treated like his son. Treated like his daughter. Treated like a beautiful, adorned bride. That's the love of God put on display for you. To the degree that you believe that, see that, trust that, repent from your sins, you will naturally have your hands take off those things that you hold on to. And I want to finish with this thought and I'm done. The question could arise. How do you get a child who is holding on to something filthy that's actually, you know, it's destructive for that child. Let's say they're in Target and they're holding on to a nasty brush that they found laying around in the cart and they're like sucking on it and licking it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. they're like sucking on that thing. It's disgusting. You have a couple options. One option is to immediately in the middle of Target, swipe that thing out of their hand, but you know what's going to happen. Your kid's going to freak out. Do the, re- Let's just say, do the rest of us a favor in Target shopping a favor. Don't take the Brush out of your kid's hand at that moment. Do something better because your child, we don't want to hear your child freak out and scream. There's another way in which you can go about that. Find something better to replace it with. Be willing to pay the price. Buy a sucker. I don't care. Buy a go that has got blue dye 13 in it. Buy something. Show it to that child and that child will naturally let go of that thing that is destructive and broken and hold on to that which is greater. There's a message done by a preacher years and years ago appeared to me titled the sermon the expulsive the, I can't remember the name of it I must not be meant to say it that our hearts once we find something greater is the gist of it once we find something greater our hearts will gladly let go of those things that are destructive in our lives at the core of who we are you are not neutral in your worship You worship something, something you value as great. Whatever it is that you value of greatness other than Jesus will actually lead to some form of destruction within your life and compromise in your morals. What you don't need is to somehow make yourself morally better. What you do need is the expulsive power of a renewed affection. That's the phrase. Something that is more beautiful, something that is more lovely that sweeps you off your feet to where now holding on to anything lesser than that great love just seems folly. That's what the gospel offers. You guys want to respond? Yeah? Let's all stand. We're going to sing. Um, if you have kids in the back, again, just as we typically say, like if it gets twelve thirty-five and we're still singing, which we may, um, Please just make sure you go pick up your kids. Um, You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. But let's respond to Jesus. Because look, at the end of the day, this God that is so great is also, there's a counterpart to that, is greatly to be praised, right? Or worship. This God that is so great is greatly to be praised. And this God that has made himself so unbelievably vulnerable to you is a God that you can actually make yourself Vulnerable to Him, knowing that He will not judge you, malign you, shame you, mock you, but He will cover you and He will cleanse you and He will welcome you. It's a good God. Let's sing to Him. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to be able to worship you. Let's sing, respond, some rugs in the front. If you guys have anything that's going on in your life, you need prayer for, we have some people over the office side. Love to pray for you. Any emotional stuff that you're dealing with, any spiritual stuff you're dealing with, even physical stuff you're dealing with. Jesus is a healer. He loves to heal us body, soul, and spirit. So take advantage of that. Sing.